Everybody else can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 13 through 21 this morning. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21 this morning. Well, I don't know, have you, ever, have, you, have you ever seen like one of these TV judge shows, like where there's a judge, like Judge Judy, People's Court, Judge Reinhold, any of these shows? Like I think, I'm pretty sure they're all the same, but um, I haven't seen them in a while, but in college, like this was something like my roommates and I used to watch. We used to watch the People's Court. There's a former mayor of New York who was like the, the judge on People's Court. So we watched his years of being the judge on People's Court. And so I haven't watched it in a while, but I'm pretty sure just from like little clips I've seen, like the premise of these shows hasn't really changed. Like it's a judge with a big personality and he doesn't take guff from anybody and um, you know, people stand before him. And so in these shows, they try to make it like a real courtroom in many ways. Like it has a court backdrop and all that kind of stuff. But, but you're very aware, like this is a TV show and it's attracting people who want to be on a TV show and who think, you know, the best solution to my problem is not to work through the criminal justice system, but to, you know, air my case in public and, you know, go on a TV show. Like, this is the better way of getting. So it's sort of attracting a certain crowd already. And, and it's usually really not like a, a complex legal matter that the judge is deciding, but it's usually just a personal grievance between two people that the judge is deciding and all this kind of stuff. But, and sometimes, like, it just gets silly, kind of some of the stuff that goes on the show, right? So there's one, I remember there was a guy who owned an accordion and he was, a, he was suing a guy, uh, an accordion repair shop owner. So he said that he took his, his accordion in for repairs, and he said the owner of the shop like, didn't do a good job repairing it, and so he was suing him for like, a new accordion or whatever it was. So they brought, so to sort of prove his case, he brought two accordions, one that's supposed to play well and one that's broken. And as he's playing it, the judge is like, just... I don't know which one's, which one's the right one. They both sound horrible. So they had to throw the case out because there was not a good sounding accordion. There was one where a guy, or he sued for $3 a pizza shop because he said he ordered a thick slice of pizza and he was brought out a thin slice of pizza, which I'll just say, when you think of the historical injustices, I mean, this is definitely, you know, top, top five or so. So we sued for $3, but the shop went along with it rather than giving the $3 because they just saw this as like a commercial opportunity because the guy liked the pizza. So they were showing like pictures of the pizza and like all these customer happy. And so it was just basically this extended promotion for this pizza shop. And so they found like they owed $3, but they got, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of advertising. But there's two that are my favorite. So one, a woman sued a, a, somebody, a dog owner for, for the dog biting her arm. She said the dog bit her arm. And so and she was showing judges, you know, the, ju the judge photos of, of her mangled arm. And the, the issue the judge had was, he was looking at the photo like, it's a, it's, it doesn't seem like you in the photo. She's like, oh, no, I'm sorry. Photo's a little blurry. But then they show it on screen. And the, the photo is clearly of a large black man with, with like, a, a, a giant bite mark in his hand. And this is a, a frail old white woman. And the judge is like, I just think this is something you downloaded from the Internet, not your actual photo. So she dismissed the case. But my... My favorite was there was a woman accusing a man of stealing her purse, and this man's denying stealing the purse. And so just like, okay, well, what was in the purse, you know? And she's going, you know, money, phone, credit cards, keys, wallet, blah, 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 blah. And the man chimes in, no, 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 no. Her phone was not in that purse when I took it. And so the judge immediately, you know, obviously fines for the plaintiff. And so, so that's the kind of people's court kind of stuff, that the cases you'll get. And any of these, like, I'm not sure what the people were planning walking into the courtroom. I don't think any of them came out looking good. I don't think any of this went according to their plans. All these cases, people were clearly missing something. 
They were going to a judge, but sort of recognizing they didn't get quite what they were bargaining for. Now, in our passage this morning, we are not entering the people's courtroom. We're not, we don't have some fast-talking, witty judge sort of deciding cases. But as a man approached Jesus, asking him to be judge sort of in their, in their situation, I think that's a little bit of what they were looking for, for Jesus to quickly take their side and to quickly solve their problem and to sort of dismiss the other side with this petty dispute. And Jesus is going to respond that he's not going to do that, but it's not because he isn't qualified, but it's because he's about to show him, them something deeper, a deeper danger than they see when they walked in, a danger that not just affects their wallet, but their soul. They walk in with an issue appealing to Jesus only to realize that they are blind to the actual issue at hand. Now, it's easy to sort of look at, you know, they, they were looking for a quick buck, but they didn't realize sort of the, the, the reality of the covetousness that was in their own life and the greed that was in their own life as they were appearing before Judge Jesus in this case. Now, when, as we read this story, it's going to be pretty easy to dismiss the man coming before Jesus as sort of one of these guys who's just walking in to one of these courtrooms. But I think if we do that, we'd be, we'd be neglecting to see that we're just as blind to the danger of covetousness that is in our own life and the danger that that can be to our own soul. And so I think we need to look at this story not through, boy, how does Jesus, sort of how, what's the foolishness of this man, but does this foolishness reside somewhere in me, and am I walking in a way that's just as blind as this man was walking before Jesus? main idea we're going to look at this morning is simply this, that covetousness is blinding, but Christ gives sight. Covetousness is blinding, but Christ gives Site. Our text again this morning is going to be Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. And if you're able, I'm going to ask if you could stand as we read God's word together. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We may be seated. Again, the main theme we're going to see this morning is covetousness is blinding, but Christ gives sight. And so in this passage, a man comes to Jesus, asks him to play judge. Now, Jesus isn't saying he doesn't have the right to be judge in his response. It's, he is the judge, right? But as, he's, but he, he's, as he, his response is, is saying more, listen, I'm not some gimmick to win your little debate here between you and your family. But he recognized what was really at the heart of the matter and really at the heart of this request for him to divide the inheritance, that he knew that greed and covetousness was in this man's heart. And so he tells a story of a farmer who, with human eyes, 
could appear to be quite wise, right? That he has crops and he obviously was successful as, as a farmer and he builds a bigger storage so the crops wouldn't rot. But God sees that this man's heart is far from him and that he didn't build the bigger barn for sort of, that he didn't build it for, for good reasons, but he built it for, for, for selfishness and for ease, that he could sort of just coast in his life now and sort of be generous to himself the rest of his days. And so it wasn't sort of foolishness to build the barn, but it was sort of foolishness that led to him sort of the desire to build it. The reasons he wanted to build it, Jesus was getting at, are foolish and short-sighted that they aren't profitable for what ultimately matters, but they were actually part of the rot that was taking place. So while he was, in a sense, protecting his crops from rot, he wasn't protecting his soul from rot in this story. So, again, in this story, God's not saying that wealth is wrong or some storage of goods is wrong, personal property bad, anything like that. Or, listen, wise planning can, can be good, but, but what he saw here is a, is a selfish heart in the work of this man and he saw that greed and covetousness and selfishness were at the root. So in this parable that Jesus tells, Jesus isn't warning against sort of goods, but he's, a, he's warning against these other things of covetousness and greed. Now, the sin of covetousness is not new. It has been for thousands of years one of the sins that God would warn his people against. But I also think, if we're, if we're honest, I think it's one of those sins that often gets neglected in the life of a believer. You know, if I said, you know, if I, if I were to come up here and confess, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm violent or I'm angry all the time or, you know, I regularly view pornography or I regularly lie, I regularly steal, right? That, there'd be a, a sense of, whoa, that's really bad, right? I mean, there'd be this right sense of, whoa, whoa, that's a red flag going on in your life, right? But I think so often covetousness is viewed with, well, it's not good, but it's not as bad. It's, you know, a little more acceptable to, you know, sort of to covet, right? It's, it's a little more culturally acceptable, church culturally acceptable. This is how Scripture warns of it in a few places. In the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, it says this, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Proverbs 21 says, The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. Ecclesiastes 5 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes... Of, of, of sins. And this is the company that, that covetousness keeps. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And I think so often we can view covetousness as this sort of subtle heart issue that, not good, we want to address it, but it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Here what we see is that covetousness is serious. It destroys. And I think covetousness has a particular danger to the believer because covetousness has a danger because I think we're going to see this more as we look at this passage. Covetousness has a way of blinding us to certain things. See, I think it's easy again to think 
okay, covetousness, it's this subtle heart issue, but here's why it's so deadly, because, because God's word declares something different, that it's not just this subtle, underneath-the-surface thing. But you see, what we need to see about covetousness is that the root of covetousness isn't a lack of something. It's not even, it's, it's not even desiring something. It's really desiring something that isn't meant for you, either at all or in the moment. It's really jealousy, right? It's, it's jealousy over what others have. And we, we need to see that covetousness severs our relationship with other people, right? It's, it's hard to, to, to love and walk in community when we're, really, when we're really jealous of their life or their circumstances or, or their, their material wealth or their job or their popularity, their role in church, their role in society, right? Whatever it is that we're, that we're coveting from them, it's hard to really walk in community and love when, 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 our heart, when our heart sort of, when the disposition of our hearts is we actually covet that, we covet what they have. That's hard to really walk in community so it severs relationships. But it also reveals and uh, a broken and destroys our relationship with God. Because of what it says is, God, you haven't given me enough. What you've given me isn't enough or it isn't right. That you have dealt better with other people than you have with me. That you, Lord, I ultimately know what's better for me than what you, than what you have given me. I know what I ought to have and you have deprived me. So it's right for me to covet. So ultimately, covetousness finds more joy in possessions than faith and trust in Him. And it can show up in things when somebody has a nicer car or vacation or job or situation or friendship that we long for or a role in the church or in society, popularity that you would want for yourself. And you're not happy for them, but you're jealous of them. It's at its core saying, God, why, why not me? This is what I'm supposed to have. So at the core of covetousness is discontentment. But it's not, disconnect, it's not disconnect, discontentment primarily with our goods, but it's discontentment with our God. And so the solution to covetousness isn't more, as if more money or more whatever else that we crave. It, it's, the solution to covetousness is that we would have a sinful heart transformed. And then to note the language that Jesus is speaking in verse 15, notes this, he says, take care, be on guard against this. See, Jesus is, is more than just saying, hey, covetousness, again, I want to reiterate, covetousness is bad. When he's saying to take guard and, and or to, be, to take care and to be on guard, he, he's noting this, covetousness is deceptive. It can take root subtly without you even knowing it. It can blind you to what's really going on. And then in his illustration, I think he gives some categories of what covet, how covetousness can blind us in our life. And so that's what we're going to look at next. So covetousness is blinding, but Christ gives life. And th three ways that I think Jesus illustrates here that covetousness can have a blinding effect on us. Number one is this, that coveting blinds us to count earthly days rather than eternal days. Growing up, so we, we grew up in rural Pennsylvania. I, you might know this. And we're, I went to public school, so, like, we had all summer off. And, like, as a kid, I'll just say, that, like, summer, summers were long, right? Like, we had to just find stuff to do all summer long. Like, we didn't have camps and, like, a pool. You know, we had, like, a dirty creek by our house, but that, like, lost its charm pretty quick and, and all that stuff. So, like, so I remember, like, there was just nights where my brothers and I would spend, like, just spend, like, all-nighters because we could stay up all night and we'd plan things. So one night, 
we were spending, there was this raccoon that was getting into our trash a lot, right? So, and like it would make a big mess and it would spill trash everywhere. And so, and we always had to clean it up, right? So my brothers and I, we, we, we came up, my, my, the middle brother, the, the two middle brothers, me and the next one older than me, we came up with this scheme to catch the raccoon, right? So we stayed up all night and we were planning to catch the raccoon. We had, we had this plan, so we put in like the stinkiest trash on top to really attract the raccoon. And so, you know, we, we, so we're just staying, like we have nothing to do, right? So we're just staying up all night and we're like watching the trash cans for the raccoon come. And the raccoon comes and gets into the trash and we we capture the raccoon, right? Which was very exciting for like, like 12-year-old Adam, right? So we capture the raccoon, but we didn't really, so we, we had a plastic bucket that we caught it in and we put a board over it. So that was our grand plan for catching the raccoon. But we had this moment, like we were all excited and we we're like celebrating that we had, that we had trapped this raccoon and it's like starting to claw to try to get away and like clear. And then there was this thought that like we both realized at the same time, like, well, now what do we do? Like we have this raccoon like in a bucket with a board over it. But this plan, as it's like starting to like trying to gnaw at our skin, is very short-sighted as we realize we don't have a plan for like after we catch the raccoon, like what do we do, right? So I'll just say the spoiler, the raccoon eventually got away and came back to haunt us again and again. So like, but we had this plan and we got this thing and then all of a sudden it was like, well, like we didn't, we don't know what to do. So we, so we had this plan, but we just didn't plan far enough ahead, I'll say in this scenario, right? Here's, here's the problem with what the man did. It's not that the man didn't plan. It's that the man didn't plan far enough ahead. See, this man planned for his earthly life, which I'll say is wise. The problem is he didn't plan for what was next. See, Jesus was warning, you, you can get to eternity and have this great plan for your life, and then if you're asking, well, now what? You didn't plan well. See, he lived his life for him. He lived for comfort in, the, in his earthly life, not aware that his life would come to a close very quickly. So again, the principle here is not that Jesus is against planning for our earthly life, but he is against planning only for our earthly life, or primarily for our earthly life, because we are eternal. Think of, of, of a math, sort of the way sort of, sort of graphs are in math. Like, so sometimes you'll have like a graph and you'll have an arrow, which means it just goes on forever, right? If you were to think of our, li- uh, our life on like a, like, a, like, a, like a graph in math, like we're, there's a dot that starts our earthly life and then the arrow goes on for all eternity. Our whole earthly life is spent in the teeniest, tiniest part of the dot. And Jesus is saying, you're a fool if you only plan for that teeny, tiny part of the dot versus what extends forever. Don't invest in the dot, invest in eternity. But here's what covetousness blinds us to do and trains us to do. It, 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 it makes us trade sort of eternal hope and joy and security for temporary things. And we seek to find those things rather in money and possessions and travel and circumstances. Covetousness trains us, I don't want what will refine me. I want what will be easy for me or fun for me. Here we see that we see that covetous trains us to, to just fix our eyes on what is earthly, what we find security in now, fun in now, status in now. Rather than Jesus telling us what really our vision needs to be, which is far beyond this earthly life. So coveting focuses our vision to here and not now, blinding us to what is really true, that we are eternal, and so we should invest in eternity and God's purpose and design for us is, is, is far greater than sort of, sort of temporary happiness in the, here, in the here and now, but a glorious eternity with Him. Eternal joy in Him. 
See, for us to see this rightly, we need to take we need to have eyes that, that aren't just fixed on the temporary, but are, but are fixed on him as he trains our eyes to see for eternity. We, we see here that God is the one who numbers our days. God is the one who is sovereign over our days. It's not, it's not our planning that sort of is sovereign over our days. It's not we determine our days. It's here in this passage. God determines the days of that man, and so he needs to prepare for not what he can prepare for, but what is God preparing him for, which is eternity. I think covetousness has a way of training us not to not plan, but to, to plan with too short a vision in view. Secondly, coveting blinds us to where our security comes from. So again, the main point is covetousness is blinding, but Christ gives sight. Covetousness blinds us to where our security comes from. So I think there's this idea of coveting, right, that I think is, is common, that coveting is can just be selfish greed or, you know, these kinds of just want more and nicer. And certainly that can apply at times. But I think one of the things that makes coveting more subtle and maybe even more acceptable is so often it's not about just, I just want all this stuff. I just want, you know, the, the nicest everything. But coveting just is this lie that sort of we subtly believe that, that the security lies in, in just the next thing. So again, it wasn't wrong for this man to build a bigger barn. It was wrong for him to put his trust in the bigger barn, his wisdom in the storehouse, his plan. The man trusted in his wisdom and his plan, not ultimately in the Lord. See, so often when covets, it's not just rooted in, I want something nicer for me selfishly, but it's rooted in, you know, I need this circumstance. I need the, these, I, I would rather, you know, the, what they have in grades or the, what they have in popularity, that, that'll set me up for the future. If I just had that bank account, then I would just have more security or that job, whatever it is, that if this would just be a little bit better, then I'd, I'd finally be at peace. You see, what, what covetousness does, it just sort of, it, it just it sort of says, we're just like one step away from peace. We're just one step away from security. We're just one step away from having all we really need to sort of feel sort of comfortable and feeling secure. If I just had a, a little bit more, I wouldn't be anxious, but I'd be at peace. And so covenants just keeps moving the goal to the next thing and to the next thing. And that we'll, we'll really find security if we just had this, if we just had that, rather than, oh, I have all I need in the Lord and in His provision. See, Christ, one of the things we need to see is that, that coveting just con continually just, just moves the target. And rather than finding its contentment in Christ, it finds it in the next thing, which will always be elusive to our grasp. We need to see that, we always, that if we find our contentment with God, will always have enough. If we find our, if we find our contentment in, 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 in stuff, whatever that would be, it will always be elusive to us because we've put our security in the wrong things. That's why those who... So again, it, the principle isn't that it's wrong to have a bigger barn. It's sort of putting comfort in the bigger barn. And it's why those who covet continually can't be rich towards God because they're always putting their trust and their ability to meet their needs. And so they always want to hold on more tightly to the things here. So as you think about coveting in your own life, it, it test isn't what, what are the things you're hoping for or what are things that you might want. But what does your heart do when, they, when you don't get them? When, when it doesn't happen, does, does worry and doubt creep in? Does discon, is discontentment at the root of these desires? 
So covetousness is blinding, but Christ gives sight. Third, coveting blinds us to live for us rather than God. So in verses 17 through 29, we get something of the internal dialogue happening with this man. Verse 17 says, And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So in the Greek, he said the word I or my 12 times in this, in this little in this little dialogue that he had, meaning all of his attention was on him. You know, there, there's good reasons to build, a bigger, to build a bigger barn, to store more crops. Like there, there's, you could have done it for, for good reasons, right? There's many good reasons one could do that. But his focus was solely on himself. See, coveting just has this way of fixing our eyes on me and myself and me at the center of my reality whether that be in possessions or in reputation or popularity or whatever else it is that we're craving from someone else at any given moment. And this man was making a mistake that so many do, is that he was, this man would probably, from a worldly standard, be seen as wise. Is he seen as wealthy? As he had the crops for sort of, he could coast out for a while? He would, in the eyes of the world, this man could have been considered wise. In his own eyes, he was considering himself wise. But Jesus is giving us a principle here that don't, don't sort of covet those of earthly success or sort of mistaking earthly success as having any correlation to value in the kingdom. So coveting lives in comparison and coveting lives in a world where I define what is most important. Coveting lie, tells lies of having it all rather than in sowing in the one field that God has called me to. Coveting makes human value, success in the marketplace or popularity or whatever as translating to some other area. That sort, of, that sort of success in the marketplace means you're a success at home or success in the kingdom or however it is that we choose to find success. Jesus is making clear that has no value in the kingdom. In fact, to Christ, what he sees in this man isn't a wise man who was a little off. He sees the mindset of a fool. And it was deadly to him, and it was blinding to him. See, this man could have had a great reputation to others. But if you're declared a fool by Christ, you just need to recognize there's one verdict and one voice that's going to resonate for all eternity. And it's not our opinion of ourselves, and it's not anyone else's opinion of our lives. It's of Jesus Christ. And so we want to live for him and be generous to him and to his people and his mission and his purpose. But coveting wants it now and wants it for me. But Christ is the one who changes our vision. So covetousness is blinding, but Christ gives sight. So he, here's reality. We, we can hear this and agree, okay, yep, coveting is wrong, coveting is this subtle danger. But if we want to fight coveting, if we want to live for eternity, if we want to live for something bigger than us and put security in Him, see, the wrong solution is just to sort of say, okay, just stop comparing yourself to others, just sort of stop coveting, right? We, we recognize that that's not the way it works, that we need to replace that with something else. 
So what is it that need, how do we replace, where, where, we, where we have coveting in our hearts, what do we replace that with? Well, we need, that we need Christ to give us eyes to see that in Jesus Christ, he has given us all we need, that Christ gives us not just enough to get by, but Christ gives us all we need for spiritual life and health to thrive for all eternity, and that his, that his, his work in our life is not an easy life now, that he's not failing us by, not, by, sort of not ha- by, by us not having the finest things now and the easiest thing now, but he is refining us for a purpose. He is creating us, and he is refining us for all of eternity to walk with him, and that is his purpose, and it's better than our purpose. And so we fight coveting not primarily by just building up this sort of self-denial and sort of saying, okay, I'm just going to keep saying no and no and no, but we, we fight coveting by going to him again and again and again and finding our joy and our satisfaction in him by looking to him again, by looking at his provision for his people at the cross and in his spirit that he has richly poured out and is pouring out on us. And we just say, how richly does he provide for all of his people? We look at the security he provides at the cross and in the, in, in the spirit being poured out on us. We look at how glorious he is and who he is. We look at how gracious he is to fools who, who covet and who, while coveting, he doesn't condemn, but he lovingly warns and says, no, no, listen, that, that's, that's blinding you to what's true. And he gives them new eyes to see. So the solution to coveting isn't just sort of, okay, I need to just stop looking at others or it's, it's to keep our eyes fixed on him. And the reason we can do that is because he, he left all glory. He left all the riches of heaven. He, he left all that he had all the rights and privileges to so he could come to earth and suffer and die, and so he could earn those who covet the unfading, ground of, the unfading crown of glory that we do not deserve. And we are, we, we are blinded by our sin. We are blinded by this world, but he gives his people new eyes. But we need to see this isn't just something that happens at conversion, that we live in a world where there's, there's so much around us, there's so much that the sort of people in this world are, are trained to covet after. And so, so the covetousness can just be a daily blinding reality. So he doesn't just sort of open our eyes once to see him and then just sort of hope we coast from there. But he, he gives us eyes to see him each and every day as we look to him, to look to him again and again and again. We find what's true and what's eternal and what's worth living for. Whose reputation am I ultimately living for? Whose opinion of me really is ultimately the one that matters? And so in a world where we're just filled with so many blinding lies, there's one source of truth that we just look at again and again and again. So he left all so that we could have all in him. And so we want to keep our eyes fixed on him. Covetousness is blinding, but Christ gives sight to his people. Let's pray. Father, would you... Help us to be a people as we are transformed by you, are more and more content in you. And we would find our contentment not in any of these other things, any of these just sort of the next thing. If I just had one more of this that the world speaks to us, but would we be those who find our joy and our contentment and our satisfaction in Christ? And that just transforms our view of all these things. So would you give us eyes to see you 
again and afresh today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.